You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. So grateful that you have chosen to worship with us here today. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the the teaching elder um, here at Grace. We have a lot of people that preach and teach, but I'm the one who does it the most, I suppose, and blessed to be a part of this body for many, many years. Allison and I have thought a lot about how blessed we are to be a part of Grace Community Church for a long time. You know, there are certain turning points in your life uh, that make a huge difference in the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you move forward. One of those for my first wife, Linda, and me, who has, is with the Lord now, um, was when we read Dave Ramsey's um, uh, financial help book. I can't remember the name of it. What's the name of it? Financial Peace University, but there's a book. What's the name of it? Total money makeover, okay. I'm waiting for a voice that I that stands out as Burt Wallace, wouldn't you know? <laughs> Drama, theater guy, theater guy. Uh, total money makeover. That was a turning point for us. This week, beginning on Thursday night, Charlie Williams, uh, March 5th, this Thursday, here at Grace, is going to be teaching that class. If you've never been exposed to the principles that uh, Ramsey teaches, and, and he uses a lot of the biblical principles uh, in his presentation, then sign up uh, on the website or at the Next Steps table. In fact, there's a lot going on at the Next Steps table, which is just in the back, out to the left in the lobby as you go out, um, where you can sign up for <clears throat> a Discovery Lunch next week. If you are relatively new to Grace, or even if you've been coming a while and you've never really connected... Some of the elders and staff will be there, their families, uh, right after the second service next week. Uh, we'd love to get to know you in a more kind of informal setting. And then the following week, uh, we begin our Grace Connection class, which is sort of our membership class, new members class. If you want to be a member here, this class is required. But a lot of people take it initially just to say, well, I need to, to, to know about the church so that I can make a a more informed decision or an informed decision. Uh, and so you'll learn a lot about what we believe, how we function. Elder rule is new for a lot of people, and you'll learn all about that in Grace Connection, which begins Sunday, March 15th. And please, we need for both of these to sign up. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to say, look, if you're here, you have no plans whatsoever. We've got enough food and stay for Discovery Lunch. But please, if you think this is something I want to do, sign up. And even if you don't come, that's what we need to know. Get a general idea of how many people plan to be here next week. Well, uh, in December of this past year, uh, Callie Heiligenthal, I hope I'm saying that correctly, one of the worship leaders for Bethel Music in Bethel, uh, church in Redding, California, tragically lost her two-year-old baby, Olive, who simply just stopped breathing. She was two years old. And Callie and her husband went to the pastor of the church, Bill Johnson, 
and asked if he would pray for resurrection. Look, all the major news outlets in the country followed this. Washington Post, NBC News, New York Times. Everybody was following this vigil, this prayer vigil, praying for little Olive to wake up and live again. Uh, many of the same people, and they prayed for a full week. M many of the same people were praying for the resurrection of Nabil Qureshi. That's a name that a lot of you are familiar with. Seeking Allah, finding Jesus. Was with Ravi Zacharias Ministries and was diagnosed with cancer about three or four years ago. And went to Bethel, was very impressed with the healing that was going on there. And started praying for healing and asking people to pray for his healing. Uh, two or three months after Nabil died, Allison and I watched a heart-wrenching video, a heart-wrenching video of one who expected, prayed, expecting God to raise him from the dead for seven days until they put his body in the ground. Uh, they were praying for that. On a more personal note, uh, when Allison and I were in Asheville, North Carolina this past December, I met a man from San Antonio, Texas, who attended John Hagee's church. In fact, he had a, a, a ask me on his hat, and I knew it was uh, with evangelism. And sure enough, evangelism explosion. Some of you are familiar with the program. So I said, I'm assuming you're a believer, and you want me to ask you about Jesus. He said, that's exactly right. We had a great conversation for about 30 minutes, and, and in fact, talked about theology. And he was like, tell me more. Uh, like I say, Haggy's Church is big on the second coming of Christ. It's big on healing. Um, it's, it's short in some other uh, areas. Uh, we were in a crowded hotel lobby, sitting in rocking chairs in front of a large fireplace. And somehow in the conversation, it came up that I'd been dealing with upper respiratory issues for over a month. Uh, maybe it was the wet hacking cough, you know. But I, I assured him that I was not contagious. I'd been diagnosed with pneumonia, which turned out later not to be have been pneumonia, but serious bronchitis. Because they did a couple of x-rays over a three-week period. But after this 30 to 45-minute conversation, just a great time in the Lord. I hit, my friend's wife came to him and told him it was time to go. And he turned to me and he said, My wife has the gift of healing. Would you like for her to pray for you? Now, this was an interesting question. <laughs> In a crowded room uh, with a lot of people around, I would have just been too embarrassed to allow this kind of prayer to go forward when I was younger. But now, at this age, I said, sure. And in fact, I wanted this lady's prayer to help me with my respiratory issues. I prayed believing. She put her hand on my chest, raised the other one to the heavens, in a crowded lobby with a lot of people in, commanded the pneumonia to leave my body. Look, like I say, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. I'm not, I'm in no way mocking this lady. But two months later, I'm still dealing. This is not the coronavirus, I promise you, that I have. <laughs> I've had this for a while. If it is, I had it before it was cool, I can assure you. Um, <clears throat> God answers prayers for healing in this fashion sometimes. But we shouldn't assume that he always will. I, I would never pray for someone to be 
raised from the dead. I just wouldn't. Why did God, why did God not grant all three of these requests that were made in these examples, some extreme, some lesser? Is it a lack of faith on the part of the ones who were praying, or in my case, was, was my faith too small for Jesus to heal me? Are there not promises in Scripture that would indicate that God will do something if we ask in Jesus' name? In, in fact, some of, those some of those promises are found in today's text. It's a very short text, but the material is so important, I wanted to spend this entire time on it. The way we interpret John 14, 12 to 14, will reveal much of what we think about God and His ways. But as always, we cannot interpret this or any other text without the context surrounding it and without an understanding of all that Scripture says about a particular topic. John 14, 12 through 14 is a difficult and a rich, beautiful text of Scripture. So let's get started. Would you please stand as we read God's word, John 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I, Jesus. Now, let me just stop right there and remind you of the context. It's in the uh, upper room with his disciples. They've had the meal, the last supper. He is talking with them. They've had some conversation going back and forth. He's teaching them. He's going to be teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He's talked a lot about his relationship with the Father in chapter 14. And he now says to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Please be seated. So what are we to make of these verses that seem to indicate that if Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, then our prayers will cause God to raise people from the dead. And if we want a new car or a new job, if we pray for it in Jesus' name, it will be granted. Now, once again, please don't think I'm mocking. I'm not, I'm not cynical about anyone who asks in Jesus' name. They're, these are beautiful and precious promises to us. We just need to bring some context to them. Uh, last week's text provides some of that for today's short passage in John 14. David Calvert did a wonderful job uh, in the first 11 verses of chapter 14. I thought I would actually tell you about how great a job he did with a little song. I'm, not, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. Just kidding. Jim, Jim McLaughlin now calls him the singing preacher. He's called Lee, Lee Williford the singing elder for a while. Now he's calling David the singing preacher. Uh, well, um, that was a, a, a great message from last week. If you haven't heard it, please listen to it. Uh, David talked about the great I am statement. We just sang about it. I am the way, the truth, and the life from John 14, 6. Is there 
a better verse to use to talk about the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ than John 14, 6. He also um, <clears throat> talked about Jesus' call for us to believe, both in verse 1 and then verses 10 and 11 in particular. So we're going to go back to verses 10 and 11 uh, because of the importance of them in the context. They're placed right before our verses. And Jesus is responding to Philip who says, Lord, just, just show us the, the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus is like, do you, not, do you not know, Philip? All this time, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Then verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus was saying this. All the works that you have seen me doing have been the Father's works. Because he dwells in me and I am in him. These two very important verses, along with several others, especially in this farewell discourse, establish a truth that will be important for us to remember as we come to understand the role of the Holy Spirit that we're going to start on next week. We look back on these two verses, not only with the help of the Holy Spirit right now in our midst, <coughs> but also with Holy Spirit-led reflections and diligent study of theologians for over 20 centuries, or right at 20 centuries. Theologians, during these last two millennia, have done their best to explain the Trinity. It's one of those things I, I'm constantly thinking about how I'm going to talk about this topic or that topic. When I was a kid, um, I, I remember thinking... It was really clever. It was a day where commercials were not nearly as clever as they are today. I mean, really, have you seen, ever seen a bad Geico commercial? I don't think I have. They're funny. They're hilarious. But there weren't very many funny uh, commercials back then. I just thought this was clever. There was like, Delta Airlines dedicates the next 30 seconds for a better nonstop from Raleigh to Atlanta. And you just hear a clock ticking. Of course, nobody does. Um, there was a smart aleck guy in Raleigh who did something about Fuquay Verena back in the day, but I will not dignify that uh, at the moment. But he, um, th so you're waiting for, and, and of course the point is, nobody has a better nonstop. And I was thinking, I'm going to dedicate the next 30 minutes for someone to come up and explain the Trinity. And we would hear 30 minutes of, <laughs> you can't explain the Trinity, but you can get some sense of understanding. And I'm not sure we are anywhere close to as appreciative as we should be for the work that's been done over all the years. And, and, and the Trinity is probably the most important doctrine in Scripture because everything flows from it, including salvation by grace through faith. So we're going to learn a lot about the Trinity over the coming months. And we will begin by thinking about perichoresis. Now this is the place you expect me to say, just kidding. But I'm not going to say that. 
Perichoresis is a big word that help explains the complex doctrine of the Trinity. It refers to the mutual indwelling of the persons, the three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Different persons, one God, one essence, one nature. Everything, think about this, everything each person of the Trinity does is in perfect concert with the other two. But they are one God. They are three persons, but one God. That's why Jesus can say to his disciples, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's what he meant back in verses 10 and 11. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. The disciples were confused, just as we would have been. But understanding, perichoresis helps us to make sense of it, right? Uh, okay. Uh, this doctrine protects against modalism, which believes that God is one God. Sometimes he's the Father. Sometimes he's the Son. Sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Some have said he's... God the Father in the Old Testament, God the Son in the Gospels, God the Spirit in the rest of the New Testament. It also protects against tritheism, which says that there are three distinct, separate and distinct gods that work together in concert. So imagine, now again, we have 20 centuries of thinking about this. Imagine what these words sounded like to the disciples on that night. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now listen, it gets even, it gets even crazier. In the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus will pray. Crazy in a good way, not, not in a crazy way. It, it gets even better when, when Jesus says, You, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they, he's talking about us, not just his disciples, but all who will believe. That they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Remember, the farewell discourse is as much about mission as it is about relationship. And the relationship component is huge in these chapters. As difficult as this study may seem to be at this point, and by the way, if you're here for the first time today, I say this often, you may come in one Sunday and hear something and it's like, wow, that doesn't make sense at all. If you'll hang in for about six, or I, I disagree with that, if you'll hang in for about six weeks, I mean six months to, to a year, it's not that you will, what did I say? What? I, maybe I should not know what I said. If you'll hang in, not just six weeks, but six months to a year, then at least you will have a sense of where we're going. You may not agree with it. You may say, nah, I don't agree with that, but, but at least you'll have a sense. So um, all that we've talked about so far, so far will help us understand what Jesus meant in verses 12 to 14, at least a little bit. First, uh, the works that Jesus refers to in verse 12 are not limited to the disciples, but to all who believe in him. And that's why people say, this verse is for me, and I, I'm going to do greater works even than Jesus did. 
Second, we are, perf- we are not performing signs. Remember John in his gospel talks about signs. There are seven signs that point to Jesus' divinity and his deity. We're not performing signs that point to us. We are doing the works of God that point to Jesus. Third, works assigned to Jesus do not only refer to his miracles, but to his other actions and his teaching. Time and again, the disciples misunderstood Jesus' teaching. Immediately following these astonishing words, Jesus would tell them that the Holy Spirit is going to come to help you remember all the things that I have taught you. What Jesus did not say, but he also meant, was that the Holy Spirit would help interpret the words. There was this uh, uh, that Jesus had said, and make them make sense, cause them to be brought together in a way that they could make sense. Immediately after his resurrection, Jesus started telling his disciples, first on the road to Emmaus, and then back in Jerusalem and up in Galilee, that all of Scripture had been pointing to him and to the cross that he must suffer and die. All along, the Scripture had been pointing that way, and they started to make sense of it. On the day that Peter preached at Pentecost, the gospel became clear, and it became clearer every day after that. So, but you see Peter talking about Joel and about how in these last days, by the way, we've been living in the last days ever since the Spirit came at Pentecost, ever since Jesus was here. We've been living in the last days. So people say, do you think these are the last days? Yes, I do. Absolutely. You think Jesus is returning soon? Yes. And that may be today, hopefully, or 10,000 years from now. I don't know. But it's the last days all along from, from, from the time Jesus was here. And so when Peter preached from Pentecost, on Pentecost, when he preached from Joel and other Old Testament passages, he had been making sense of them. Jesus had been teaching the disciples. He wasn't standing there in a trance. But he said, you know what? Here's what this scripture was saying all along. And who was the ultimate author of scripture? The Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and began to make this very clear. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all the things that I've said, but he would also help them interpret Jesus' words, and they, along with the Apostle Paul and a few others, would pass along their understanding of Jesus' redemptive work to the rest of the world through Scripture. Look, the disciples couldn't get their minds around Jesus' continual references to his impending death. Much less could they comprehend the significance of his death. Once Jesus died and was raised from the dead, that's when it all started to come together. That was before his ascension back to heaven and then Pentecost. Why was it that everything was pointing to the cross? Because our sins made it necessary that God punish sin. And Jesus took the punishment in our place. Romans 4 tells us that when God raised Jesus from the dead... And by the way, all three things, the Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead, 
Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. That's all of that perichoresis, you know, that they're all of one heart and mind and they're all participating, although they have distinct roles. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was proof that the Father accepted the Son's death and sacrifice as payment for our sins. So where does that leave us as we try to discern the meaning of verse 12? What are the greater works that we will do, uh, even greater than Jesus? Look, D.A. Carson says this, and, and this, is the, this is the explanation that makes the most sense to me. Most likely, Jesus was referring to a time when the gospel would be clear to all. Think of how... Confused the disciples were over and over. And Jesus was exasperated with them. But really they had no way to understand. Because the Holy Spirit at that point was dwelling with them. But he wasn't in them. Teaching them uh, scripture that he had written. So the, the greater works can be performed only when the gospel is clear. And God's great plan of redemption in Jesus has been put into motion. The gospel is crystal clear in our day for those who have ears to hear. That's going to help us understand these next two, ver two verses as well. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like an amazing promise. It, it, it's far greater than, than a kid could ever hope for from Santa Claus. That we can ask anything in God's name. And as we grow and mature as believers, we ask for better and better things, right? We ask for God to help with relationships, with broken relationships. We ask for God to heal people. We ask for good things. It's not, these are not selfish things that we're asking for. Why isn't that, that sometimes the answer seems to be no? When you take these verses outside their proper context, it can seem like a dream come true. We can ask God for anything as long as it's in Jesus' name and expect that he will give us whatever we ask. But look, tacking in Jesus' name on end of a prayer is not a magic formula. It's not like a password that opens locked doors. To do something in one's name is to act on behalf of that person according to the person's character. That's why... Your spouse or your parents or your friend will say, or your boss. Now, remember, when you're on this trip, who are you representing? The company, the family, you know, the, the, the school, whatever. You're representing somebody. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. When you ask God for something, you ask according to my character. So what was it that Jesus was talking about to his disciples on the night before Judas' betrayal and his rest, arrest? He was talking about unity and mission. Believe in me, love one another, and ask 
God for great things that represent my character, for I came to seek and to save that which is lost, that which was lost. And remember, God be glorified in the Son. God's greatest glory, Jesus' greatest glory was seen at the cross in a moment of suffering, suffering for our sins. This is not an easy mission. And over the next hour or so, in the upper room, not, uh, not an hour in this room, over the next hour or so, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that people will hate them for their message. He's going to say, they're going to hate you so bad <coughs> that they'll think when they kill you that they're doing God a service. And the disciples are like, what? Kill us? We're ready to crown you king and be on your right hand and on your left hand. I didn't know this was going to involve death. This does not sound like anything like the prosperity gospel. Why is it that some of us interpret these verses to mean that God wants us to always be happy and safe and prosperous and to have our best life now and for as long as we live, which will probably be past 100 years of age. For starters, when we pull verses like these out of context, it becomes very easy to make them say whatever our hearts desire and whether we admit it or not, deep down, we affirm the truth of Jeremiah 17, 9, that our hearts are deceitful. And it's very easy to find ourselves justifying why we expect God to answer a prayer in the way that we want him to. When we pray this way, when we pray expecting God to answer everything, like raising people from the dead, healing the sickness, then we come to Scripture with a theology of glory. Do you remember this from about a month or so ago? Here's the definition, again, from Gene Veith. A theology of glory expects total success. Theology of glory is me trying to get to God. I'm trying to be worthy. I'm trying to be good enough to make myself acceptable to God. A theology of glory ultimately leads to this. It expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. Now, let me just say to you that there are a lot of people who have a theology of glory that are not about themselves. They're very giving and very kind. But once again, think about how deceitful our hearts are and how it can turn in this direction if we're not careful. So do you see how such an understanding of Scripture would affect your interpretation of this passage? It becomes ultimately all about me. If Jesus grants every request that I make, then I must be spiritual. I have great power and thus can expect success in all that I do so long as I do it in Jesus' name. But what happens when God does not heal my wife or he does not turn my spouse's heart back to me? He does not protect me from the coronavirus. Did I fail or did God? Either way, it's a problem if we think like this. 
compromised theology in a land where almost everything can be fixed. If we are to get a proper meaning of this short text, we must read it in the greater context of John 13 to 17. And this, don't be discouraged again. The Christian life, understanding scripture, is not Sunday to Sunday. It is a lifetime. You have to understand it in the greater context of John 13 to 17. Then you understand it in the greater context of John. Then the New Testament, and then the whole Bible, because the Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are all primarily about the cross. Suffering. I get to talk about this a lot more and how it makes sense in home groups this week. This will be a really great week if you're not in a home group to visit one, to think about this at a much higher level. Everything's pointing to Jesus. So let's look at the way our understanding of these verses changes when we approach it with the theology of the cross, which avers our sin has separated us from God. Since we can never undo what we have done, really what we were born with, we cannot reach God by our own efforts. Because he loved us, God made a way for us to live with him eternally by sending his son to live the life we could not live and die the death that we deserved. God meets us through Jesus at the cross. I cannot tell you how much the notion that I, if I can just be good enough, God will accept me, is. But it's not about what we can do. It's only about what Jesus has done. So think of it. God meets us through Jesus at the cross. And how does this theological foundation impact my interpretation of the text? It reverses the focus. Now I am centered on Jesus and on his mission. And I am invited to ask God for anything. By the way, that is, we always have the privilege of asking God for anything. <clears throat> and if I know that you're sick, I'm going to pray <coughs> with all my might that you will be healed. And I'm going to pray believing that God will do this. But I pray with a heart. I, I, this is easier for me to pray about my own stuff than your stuff when I say I pray with a heart that seeks God's glory in Jesus no matter what that means. In other words, I'm more willing for him not to answer my prayers about my health than I am to say, Lord, your will be done. Ted McKinney's sick, but please heal him. But hey, if it brings glory for this sickness, I, I, I just I can't pray like that. But we all ought to pray like this, especially with regard to ourselves, primarily is what I'm saying. Pray that God's glory be done. Why would my heart, my deceitful heart, be more focused on the Lord than myself? Because I recognize what a gift Jesus is to me. His greatest expression of love for me was at the cross. Just as 
the Father's great love for me was shown in sending Jesus to the cross. Now, some people today say that if God the Father punishes Jesus for our sins, then that's celestial child abuse. Don't forget perichoresis. The Father, the Son, the Spirit always act in perfect unison. They always function in one accord. What then should our prayers look like? Here are three suggestions as you pray for healing or for a job change or for a relationship. First, God, be glorified in Jesus as you hear and answer my request. God is going to answer your prayer. We're going to talk about this a lot in home group. Again, it, it, it would be a really good week for you to be at home group because there's so much more application to this text. God, be glorified in Jesus as you hear and answer my prayer according to your will. That's the prayer that never fails, by the way. Your will be done. Second, may I live. Give me the strength. And I am, since I am united with Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in me, May I live and pray according to Jesus' character, regardless of how you answer this prayer. And third, may I always trust you, even as I pour out my heart to you in agony, and sometimes in grief. We buried my aunt yesterday. 54 days after we buried my uncle. Think about my three cousins. They can't make sense of that right now. It is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we remember twice a month here at Grace at the Lord's Table. We're not commanded to remember Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth. Although Jesus coming to earth is consistent, is worthy of consistent rejoicing, just continual. Oh, you came, blessed be your name. We do not pause to remember Jesus' resurrection, although every Sunday is a reminder of the resurrection. We are commanded, though, to remember and proclaim the Lord's death when we gather at this table and we are to do so until he returns. So as the elders and deacons and worship team come forward, I'm going to give a few instructions for the meal. Um, first, this meal is open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've repented of your sins, and you're not trusting anything that you have done, but only what Jesus has done for your salvation. 
what he did on the cross rather than your own good works, then, which can never be good enough, then we invite you to join us at the table. We'll be serving from the front, which means that you'll come forward, come down the interior aisles, and then go back up the center or the side aisles. Uh, some people will partake up front, um, and others will take the, the elements back to their seat. Most do that, and pause for just a moment and reflect uh, before t partaking. Um, let me also say that there will be stations in front of each section. Go to the section in front of you unless your section is backed up and another one is free. Then you can slip over to that one. There will be ushers to alert you when to go. Before I continue, though, we're going to have a moment of silent confession in obedience to 1 Corinthians 11. 28 to 31. Let's, let's look at this for just a moment. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now let me just quickly say, the context for this passage of Scripture is that people were making a mockery of the table, which is not happening here today in any way. The only way you make a mockery of the body of Christ when you participate here is if you're living in sin and you don't care two hoots about it. If you've confessed it 10 million times, confess it again and partake. This table is where we find forgiveness, not in the elements, but this is the picture. This is the beautiful remembrance of what Jesus did so that we might be forgiven our sins. That's not what the Corinthians were doing. And he said, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, just, just acknowledge your sin before the Lord. And so I'm going to give us just a, a, a few moments as we confess our sins privately to the Lord with full assurance of his forgiveness. Would you pray in your heart to the Lord? These words from Luke's gospel will be a part of our study this week at home group. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup. After they had eaten, saying, 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The glory of God is seen most clearly in the suffering of Christ. That's counterintuitive, cognitive dissonance. Anyhow you want to describe it, it just doesn't add up, it doesn't make sense. But it's beautiful when you believe it by faith. And it enables you, whatever the struggle is in your life right now, it could be a broken relationship, it could be sin that you're struggling with, like crazy, you don't want to keep looking at porn, you don't want to keep gossiping, you don't want to keep sabotaging your relationships. Whatever it is, allow the suffering of Christ to be the payment for your sin. And trust Him as you partake. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks for the body and the blood of Christ that are represented by the bread and the fruit of the vine that we partake of this morning. And we do so, Lord, with our hearts turned to you, grateful for your forgiveness. And we also do so in concert with our brothers and sisters in Christ, grateful for being brought into the family of God through Jesus. So, Lord, um, we thank you for your love and kindness that sent you to the cross. Father, thank you for the beautiful plan of redemption. And Spirit, thank you for causing us to recognize the gravity of our sin and the greatness of the sacrifice made on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray your blessings on this meal that we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's not wrong to pray in Jesus' name. We do it, and it's proper to do it. Just don't think it's the formula. This is a meal for believers. If you're not a believer... If you've not trusted Christ, that this is not a good time because there is sin in your life that, not that you're struggling with, but sin that you have passed the struggle and you're saying, hey, I'm, I don't care, I'm just going to live this way. And please don't eat today. Or, or if you don't know and you're just trying to think, is this light, do I believe this about Jesus and my sin? Then you may just want to come and pass by or just stay in your seat. It's okay. Nobody, believe me, nobody's going to be looking at you and saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's not the case. Just, we need to all, every one of us, take this meal seriously and give thanks to God for the beautiful things that he's done. The servers will be served first, and then uh, we will invite you to come forward. If you're unable, raise your hand. Ricky Lee will pass the elements to you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.